Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, commuting and travel chaos continues. We'll bring you the latest as more snow and freezing rain is forecast. And the Surrey police argues its case with the B.C. government on why it shouldn't be disbanded. And later, Canada plans to welcome millions of new immigrants, but can our aging infrastructure keep up? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. province is strongly advising against any form of travel throughout much of BC beginning tonight through Saturday with freezing rain set to coat the highways and ice creating treacherous driving conditions. Now Environment Canada is predicting heavy snow, ice pellets and freezing rain on the south coast and Vancouver Island over the next two days along with strong winds and extreme cold Temperatures. The freezing rain could last up to 36 hours in the Fraser Valley, according to the province, and up to 80 millimeters of rain could also fall, according to the forecast. Now, Minister of Emergency Management Bowen Ma spoke to the press as the South Coast braces for the next winter storm. Environment Canada and Drive BC have issued weather alerts and travel advisories for many areas, and I strongly encourage everyone in these areas to travel only if necessary. I know many people have plans to travel to their friends and families, but these are very dangerous conditions and we want to make sure everyone is safe. BC Hydro is also advising that freezing rain is likely to cause power outages, particularly on Vancouver Island and in the Fraser Valley. Their crews are ready to respond to outages as quickly as possible. If you need to travel, Get prepared by packing a winter survival kit, including a windshield scraper, a snow brush, flashlights and extra batteries, first aid supplies, blankets, drinking water and non-perishable food. It is also a good idea to have a full tank of fuel before traveling. Around the home, please make sure that you have flashlights and batteries available. And make sure that your drains are clear in preparation for the snow melt and rain that is likely to come over the weekend. If you are stuck or stranded, stay in your vehicle or your home. Call 911 for assistance when needed. While freezing rain is in our immediate future, we are also looking to what's next, heavy rain. My ministry is working closely with the River Forecast Center to anticipate river levels and communicate with the public. While at this time, river conditions are not anticipated to lead to significant flooding, we will be monitoring the situation closely and are ready to assist notify, pardon me, ready to notify people and their communities and to assist if flooding does occur. My ministry is prepared to support First Nations and local governments who need it. On the Lower Mainland, Fraser Valley and Vancouver Island, we have pre-positioned sandbags, gabions, which are like wall-like structures filled with sand, and tiger dams, which are stackable orange tubes filled with water. So we are pre-positioning flood assets where they are most likely to be needed. This weather could also have impacts on farmers in the Fraser Valley, who I know have already dealt with so much. And I know that Minister Alexis is working with our partners to do what we can to minimize impacts on their operations. My ministry has, like I said, pre-positioned flood assets on Vancouver Island and the Lower Mainland should any First Nations or local authorities need assistance. Thank you again to everyone who has come together to help keep each other safe. Stay safe. Our government is doing everything that we can to make sure that people are safe, kept warm, while we weather these storms together. That was the Minister of uh, Emergency Management, Bo Wen Ma. As she had said, freezing rain in the Fraser Valley could last 
uh, for between 12 to 36 hours. Now, further into the interior, it is not expected that freezing rain will hit the Thompson Okanagan as temperatures will stay well below freezing. 5 to 10 centimeters of snow could fall in uh, in Kelowna on Friday. About 5 centimeters is expected on Saturday. Kamloops should get 5 centimeters on Friday with uh, some more light snow on Saturday. Now, the River Forecast Centre says there is some minor to moderate risks of localized flooding on the south coast on Sunday, as well as rain falls on accumulated snow. Here is Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. As stated, we're expecting a severe winter weather system starting later tonight. Our maintenance contractors are preparing for heavy snow to hit the south coast this evening. They're fully deployed with those same hundreds of pieces of equipment and have subcontractors with more equipment readied as well. Working with Environment Canada, we expect heavy snow will hit Vancouver Island, Howe Sound Whistler in the Sunshine Coast, the Lower Mainland and the Fraser Valley. Accumulations will differ by locale, but we could see as much as 20 to 30 centimetres of snow over a 10 to 12 hour period. After that, as freezing temperatures rise, this snow will change to freezing rain and ice pellets. And this will happen tomorrow morning and could last well into Saturday. The duration of the freezing will depend on location. And we're watching this freezing rain event very closely as it has the potential to uh, have a very significant impact on road conditions all across the south coast of BC, including Vancouver Island. The freezing rain is such a concern, in fact, that my ministry is strongly advising against any form of travel from tonight through Saturday. Of particular concern on the island is the Malahat Highway 1 and Highway 4 to Port Alberni. This will affect roads in the interior as well, including the western portions of the Coquihalla, Highway 1 through the Fraser Canyon, and Highway 3, the Hope Princeton Highway. Freezing rain can coat our highways in ice, and our maintenance contractors are fitting many of their vehicles with ice blades to cut through any accumulation as ice is very tough to manage. In the interest of safety, we may close highways if necessary with short notice. I know people have plans for the holidays. They want to spend family time with family, friends and loved ones, but this is a significant weather event. Snow followed by freezing rain and then rain. And the rainfall that follows uh, could be extremely heavy and as much as 80 millimeters, which could result in some localized flooding and Minister Ma has outlined some of the preparations uh, that have been undertaken to deal with that. As always, our contractors will do their best to manage what is thrown our way. But the timing is going to be tricky to go from plowing a heavy dump of snow to laying down salt to combat the freezing rain. It will be a big challenge. And for those who absolutely must travel, you will need to plan and prepare. And we ask for your patience and to exercise the utmost caution. Drive slowly and safely according to the conditions. Do not pass maintenance equipment. They're there to keep you safe. Observe the amber lights as they work on our roads and be fully prepared for winter conditions. This includes having proper winter tires and making sure you you pack appropriate clothing and food in case you're stuck or delayed. Once we get to Christmas Day, we expect to be back in the typical rainy, temperate West Coast weather pattern. That was Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, and part of that, of course, we heard from Bowen Ma, uh, the Minister of Emergency Management. We're bringing on uh, Daniel Fontaine now. He is the City Councillor in New Westminster. He has been advocating for a snow summit. He was on the show yesterday. I wanted to bring him on again today. We had been talking about the minister, uh, both ministers, of course, um, and not just in this snow event, but one just a few weeks ago. Uh, Daniel, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back on, Jeff. Yeah, your thoughts on this today? Well, a lot is running through my mind. Um, I, I did have the opportunity to listen to the news conference today and, and got to uh, hear from uh, folks at Environment Canada and from the ministry. And clearly this is going to be a, a, a whopper of a storm. And this is, you know, Jazz, the third 
weather event that we've had now in about three weeks. So, um, and I must say that I am I am concerned. I mean, I saw what happened with our, uh, in particular, our bridges in the Lower Mainland when the uh, recent uh, the one the event on November 29th happened. And we didn't handle it well. And I did not hear today in the news conference any discussion around um, what the contractors were doing to make sure that our, our choke points, the bridges, remain open so people can continue to get on and off places like Annesis Island. I, I didn't hear that. I did not hear any discussion today about the use of the emergency text message system. If things get really bad, is the province going to be communicating out through that? So. Jazz, I, I, I'm pleased to see um, the news conference today. I, I would dare say it's about four weeks a bit late, but I'm glad that the, the province is finally um, undertaking this type of proactive communication, but begs a lot of questions as to what's been happening over the last few weeks and why haven't these types of, of communiques been coming out to the public to advise them of the risk of getting on the road um, in the coming uh, uh, days. I recall the the first event where people uh, were stuck uh, for 12 hours just trying to get home uh, out on uh, in the choke points, as you said. No ministers, neither minister, uh, I recall. They, I think they put up a deputy minister, a bureaucrat, to, to address some of those questions. Um, you know, also, when you think about the fact that uh, this is occurring just hours before the snow event um, is really going to start hitting us, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it once again goes back to, I think, what you've been talking about, which is we <laughs> actually have to sit down and talk about how we address some of this issue when it comes to a snow event. Uh, I mean, are you disappointed a little bit? Because as you said yesterday, you've heard no response in regards to getting Mm. together. And number one, we haven't heard from these ministers except for today all of a sudden. And Mm. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there was no municipal representation there either, is there? We don't know what the Metro Vancouver response or any mayor's response is, all 21 municipalities. No, I have a shopping list of things, uh, Jazz, that I have concerns around that news conference today. And one of them was the fact that there was no representatives from municipal governments. In fact, the media were asking questions around what was going to happen outside of the provincial highways. And there was little to no response because there was, in fact, no representatives there from the municipal governments. Interestingly, there was federal representation there with Environment Canada, but not municipal. It really goes back, Jazz, we need to have a coordinated response. We we do it for things like fire, water and sewer in our in our metro area. Surely, uh, knowing that climate change is here and will be with us for, a, you know, for, for, for many decades to come, likely, we have to be prepared for these things. And things like news conferences, coordinating messaging, hopefully not just hours before the storm's arriving, but perhaps days before the storm arrives. These are not complicated things. And I'm just, I, I do not understand why there's such a hesitancy on the part of the minister and of Metro Vancouver to simply get into a room and agree that there are better ways to manage these things than, you know, having people just kind of go on the on the streets and hope for the best and tell them to put on winter tires. I mean, I think we can do better than that. My guest is Daniel Fontaine, U.S. Minister City Councilor, just talking about uh, the next 36 hours here uh, on the South Coast, but also in the interior and the island. Uh, we are being advised to stay off the roads if you possibly can. How do you think the government's been handling this situation? Call me on the open line. Let's go to Bill in Langley. Hi, Bill. Hey, Jazz. Hey, uh, way too easy to blame the province for all of this. Municipal level, I live in Abbotsford, Mm -hmm. and uh, the main roads were barely plowed, let alone the secondaries, and absolutely atrocious. And again, people are out there who shouldn't be out there. I drive for a living, and I, I watch people driving 20, 30 kilometers an hour and they're glued to the steering wheel looking like they're just raked to death. 
<laughs> and all of that adds up to bad, bad, bad. Don't don't blame the province. It's something that happens. Yeah, Bill, Daniel, uh, please jump in here. I mean, I think the, the, what Daniel's saying, or certainly what I've been trying to say, is look, let's talk about this first and foremost. You know, they can't solve all of it, but do we need to put more resources in equipment? Do we actually need to put some dollars in hiring people? Or do we need to have bigger contracts so, uh, you know, some of these private contractors uh, can hire more people? That's part of the discourse. It's not just blaming the province. It's trying to find a solution. Uh, Daniel, I'll let you talk for yourself here. I mean, I think that's your general thrust of your argument, right? Yeah, absolutely. I said from the get-go, this is not a blame game. This is about finding solutions to how, to how to prevent this from happening again. And I have said very clearly that the province plays a role, particularly on the provincial highway system. Municipalities play a role, a role in terms of the, the side and secondary streets. And then individually, we play a role in terms of making sure we, when we get behind the wheel that we have a vehicle that can actually operate on the roads. It is a joint responsibility, and that's why... Getting people together in a snow summit and having this discussion is so critically important. And as has been noted, uh, Jazz, you know, depending on which municipality you you hit in the lower mainland, either you've got bare pavement or you're needing a four by four. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and look I, to our last call. You're absolutely right. Some municipalities do it well, and some, you know, there is personal responsibility here. You know, people in minivans driving. Super fast. Uh, I saw the other day. I was just shaking my head. And there are people with summer tires. You should have winter tires. You should be better prepared. Uh, so that's part of it as well. There is some personal responsibility uh, as well. Uh, let's go to Brad in Victoria. Hi, Brad. Hey, Jazz. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I don't view it as much as a provincial responsibility. Uh, the highways that I've been on, I, I drive a lot. Yeah, have been pretty clear. But I'm in Victoria right now, and this city has not been plowed. I started my day in Nanaimo, mm-hmm. working my way back home to Qualcomm Beach as we speak, and. I'm in a little Ford Focus, and the amount of snow on these roads here in Victoria, they have not been plowed. I don't know. I'm talking right downtown. I got stuck at a parking meter right on Ford Street today, right downtown. They've just plowed nothing, and and I don't understand what this is. Well, I I don't know what this is going to look like once we get all of this rain. But you talk about personal responsibility. I have a Ford Focus, and I have an F-150, and the F-150 costs a lot to run. But I I have an obligation to myself and my family to not be stranded Mm -hmm. when we get snow in a Canadian winter. So... Sorry, climate change people. I'm keeping my F-150. I'm keeping my 4x4 and, and my all-terrain tires. And I'm going to use that because at least three, four, five times a year, it seems, I'm going to need it. And I just cannot afford to be stuck in my home with a 80, 80-year-old mother around the corner and, and a family that I have to take care of. I can't just sit there and wait for days on end. This snow event happened Monday night to Tuesday, and here we are Thursday afternoon, and they have not cleared these roads. And what this is going to look like after this this rain event over the next 48 hours, it's, whatever that's going to be, it's just going to be hell on wheels. Yeah, Brad, thanks for your call. We've run out of time. Daniel, thank you so much. Well, let's face it, we spent a lot of time talking about housing on this show, and I promise you it'll be no different in 2023. In many ways, it's the defining issue of our time. In fact, we'll be talking about our ballooning immigration numbers and the fact we aren't building enough housing fast enough. That'll be at the 5 o'clock hour. It's a national issue, but it's a local issue as well. Here in Vancouver, the concern sounds something like this. Too many housing development proposals become stalled at the permit approval stage as local councils deliberate over building heights, parking issues, and the character of neighbourhoods. Now, this is happening as homeless encampments pop up, rental units are difficult to find, house prices rise, and thousands of people 
arrive in BC looking for places to live. Well, our next guest has some advice on how we can speed up approvals in 2023. In fact, uh, he's put together a 12 Days of Christmas planning guide. Uh, He sent one to me the other day and I found it fascinating. I thought it would be a great time to talk a little bit about housing. Uh, Michael Geller is the president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, he's a planner and a real estate consultant as well. Michael, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it was very clever. I appreciate uh, the email that you sent uh, in regards to your 12 Days of Planning Guide. Now, I won't go through each one individually, but uh, there's some of that I found quite interesting. Now, on the second day of Christmas, as it says in the uh, in the uh, planning guide that you sent me, you said, rein in design review committee members. Now, explain a little bit of that to our audience in regards to how sure. City Hall works in regards to the planning. Most municipalities have a review of a design by staff and eventually by the councillors, but they often have something called a design review committee or in Vancouver, the urban design panel. And uh, it's a variety of architects as well as some engineers, landscape architects and others who review the plans. And I've sat on this panel uh, twice in Vancouver over the years. But one of the problems I've noted is very often the kind of people who want to be on these committees are often very knowledgeable, but they're also very opinionated. And too often I see them suggesting design changes which go against what the staff had been telling them to do or perhaps even what the community had been telling them to do. So one of the things I've said is just to speed up the process, let's think a bit about, more about just how much say each individual member should have. Now, this isn't happening everywhere, but it definitely does happen. And if there's any architects or developers listening to us right now, <laughs> and I'm sure there are, they say he's absolutely right. And, and this isn't just a, a city of Vancouver issue. It's throughout the Lower Mainland and many other uh, municipalities around, around British Columbia as well. That's right. Most municipalities have a design review committee process and sometimes just waiting to get on the agenda of the design review committee can cause a delay of a month or two while you're simply waiting. And then very often what I see is the committee members say, well, you know, this is this shows promise, but I think we'd like to see this design again. And so three months later, it goes back, and by then they've changed the composition of the committee, and there's somebody new who has a couple of other ideas. And people will be laughing and saying, oh, don't be silly, Geller, but this is part of the problem. Wow. Well, on the third day of Christmas, according to um, uh, your, uh, your list here, you're recommending to improve public input procedures. Now, I'm going to assume you're okay with public input and public hearings, but uh, you see some challenges there. Yeah. In fact, I am okay, and I actually don't agree with the suggestion that there, you know, we should be allowing 12-story buildings in neighborhoods with two- and three-story buildings without any public hearing process. I actually disagree with that. But what I don't like is the fact that many public hearings, the process is abused. For one thing, the developers are stacking the room, but the public is stacking the room. The other thing I see is in some municipalities, individuals can speak three times. And when I shared this with one of my colleagues, he reminded me of former Richmond Mayor Gil Blair, who was excellent when it came to managing public input. And he made it very clear. Look, if you're going to repeat what someone else has just said, I don't want to listen to you for five minutes. And he would manage the process. And so I'm just encouraging municipalities not to cut out the public hearings, 
but to at least manage them. But also to say, look, with new technology, maybe there's other ways to solicit public input rather than make, uh, you know, go on and on. I went through one project in Delta. Some mm-hmm. of your listeners from Delta, were, it went off for 26 nights. <laughs> 26 <laughs> nights, Jazz, wow. before it was finally turned down. Oh, my God. Well, let's talk about the other issue, which is, you know, we had a lot of city councillors and mayors uh, on this show, and we talk uh, in many cases about rezoning and, and zoning challenges um, in your, under your recommendation, based on your experience, you're saying reduce the number of rezonings. Walk me through that. We, one of the big debates right now is how do we finance growth? How do we finance the cost of infrastructure to accommodate the homes we need? And uh, that, that in itself is an important discussion. But one of the problems we have right now is municipalities want to charge something called a community amenity contributions. But they have to be voluntary. They're not legally allowed to, to charge them in many municipalities under the Municipal Act. And so what we do is we deliberately improperly zone land. So a developer comes forward with a rezoning, and then he can voluntarily make that $3.5 million community amenity contribution. I'm I'm not saying we should cut out the contributions. I'm saying two things. One, we should fix the amounts, and to the credit of the city of Vancouver, it is in the process of doing that. But two, we shouldn't have to have a rezoning to charge a community amenity contribution. Let's just change the municipal act and then zone land so that people know what's likely going to happen because a rezoning often takes a year or two, and it's a very uh, uncertain process. And I think we need to uh, to address that. Um, Michael, it's not as just a Vancouver issue, but why have we gotten to this point where, and I don't want to be blaming and kicking around municipal governments, because I think, the, as, you, as you said already in, in, in some of your comments, the provincial government has some, a role to play in regards to um, uh, the provincial um, uh, legislation here. But why have we got to this point where, you know, it, it's quite frustrating to get anything built, uh, to build anything, number one. And, you know, it takes so much time at City Hall for some of this stuff to get done. Like, how, why have we gotten here? And how have we gotten here? Yeah. And it's not just big projects. I mean, people right now who are listening to us who have stores or small restaurants who've been trying to get a permit to do some alterations, they're probably saying, you know, this is exactly what we've been experiencing. People are trying to get a permit to restore a heritage house. You think everybody wants to help them, and they do want to help them, but it still takes not days or weeks, and sometimes not even months. It takes years. And why is it? Because over the years, we've taken our zoning bylaws and our procedures, and we've kept layering on. Each few years, there's a review, and then we layer on more regulations. And so one of the things I'm suggesting is we really need to do the equivalent of zero-based budgeting and say, now, really, how many of these regulations are really absolutely necessary? Why is there variation? You'll note in my card, I point out in the city of Vancouver, uh, in some zones, a balcony can be equal to 8% of the area of the building. In other zones, it can go up to 12% of the area of the building. In other zones, there's no limit on the size of the balconies. And I think one really has to question, is it necessary to have all this variation? And is it necessary to have all these different 
zones. Mm-hmm. And I really do think we can simplify these things. And, and that's why I thought, well, in the spirit of holiday giving, why not throw out some of these suggestions? And to be fair, many of the politicians have responded to me and thanked me for it, but pointed out they're already implementing some of these changes, and it's true. But the reality is we've been talking about speeding up the approval process or streamlining it for literally decades, and uh, it's just got worse. Yeah, and you, you know, uh, and uh, your list is wonderful. Like number nine is reducing the number of council design approvals. Your twelfth day of Christmas is create a nexus lane for pre-qualified applicants. Really, uh, really simple, smart, practical responses to the challenges that are before us. When I look at Ontario, they've talked about creating a a, a, a super mayor's office, similar to what a, a American mayor would have, would would the power that they would have. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit at five o'clock as well. Do you think now? My final question to you: Do you think we're with our premier? wanting to really put his mark on housing. You're seeing um, the uh, the Ontario provincial government with their uh, premier wanting to give more powers to mayors to speed up zoning. Do you think we're at that point where we can actually start fundamentally in 2023 moving forward, actually start speeding up some of these processes and a practical response to actually getting housing built faster and, and really increasing supply? I I am optimistic because I think things have got so bad, as I mentioned on the show once before. They've got so bad, it's not hard to improve the process. But there's no doubt that David Eby's personal commitment to uh, sort of let the provincial government intervene if necessary, I think that is is resonating with a lot of municipalities. Now, some of the politicians are upset about that, you know, Don't come and try and play in our sandbox. But I think the majority of politicians recognize that there's legitimacy to the concerns that developers and architects, but also small homeowners and small business owners are claiming. And uh, in Ontario, they actually do have a higher level of appeal called the Ontario Municipal Board. And uh, it's worth having a conversation about that one day. I think most people would say, we don't want that here. But I know that most of the developers that I talk to are very pleased that David Eby is saying, look, if you're not going to speed up the approval process and simplify the programs, then I am going to take some necessary action. And indeed, the province has done a couple of studies on how the process can be improved. There's some excellent recommendations. And hopefully we will see them. And the fact that you're allowing me to talk about this and hopefully other listeners will uh, follow up with letters to their municipality. That's how we make change. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, uh, always uh, enjoy talking with you. Uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Look forward to uh, many more conversations in 2023. Have a wonderful right. day. Same to you. All the best. Today, the Surrey Police Service uh, submitted a report to the province calling on it to reject the city's request to halt the transfer of policing from the RCMP. Now, it's been submitted uh, to the province's policing and security branch and is intended to guide a decision by the Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth 
on the fate of Surrey's policing uh, transition. It is an ongoing soap opera, that's for sure. Now, City Council uh, sent its own report to the province last week saying that keeping the RCMP as its police force would save $235 million over five years with a decision by Mr. Farnworth expected early in the new year. That's a number, of course, uh, the SPS has disputed. Now, joining us now to discuss the issue is Surrey Police Service Chief, Norm Lipinski. Chief Lipinski, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, Two reports have now been submitted to the uh, province of British Columbia. Walk our audience through those two reports and what they broadly talk about. Yes, absolutely. The provincial government asked us to submit a report, and uh, one of the reports that we submitted today is a very comprehensive report, in fact, uh, almost 100 pages, and uh, it goes through what uh, we have accomplished to date. And it goes through some of the finances. It goes through a lot of the human resources. And it goes through some of the things that we are required to put in place uh, if we uh, want to be police of jurisdiction. The other report that is the public report is essentially a summary of the comprehensive report. Of course, shorter, 25 pages, but it, again, walks through what we have done, and especially the executive summary, if you look at those uh, bullet points, it, uh, it starts at, uh, you know, how we came to be and uh, walk it through, and uh, including some of the finances, but certainly the HR aspects of things and what we can uh, do and how quickly we can do it looking forward into the future. And, and does it specifically counter some of the assertions made in that report uh, that was discussed a few weeks ago at the city of Surrey? Well, it does. Um, and unfortunately, we weren't able to present in front of the uh, council at that time. Uh, one of the things that uh, it talks about is the money issue. We have a different opinion on the costing. Our costing is $18.9 million a year more for the Surrey Police Service. Uh, that's at full capacity, which is 734 police officers. And, uh, of course, the report by the city was almost double that. And uh, it's unfortunate that both parties couldn't get into the room before the report was put out and have a discussion and really look into the line items and interpretation of uh, some of those line items. But nonetheless, um, uh, that's one of the areas we disagree with. Uh, The second area would be the number of police officers that, if this transition were to be reversed, would go to the RCMP. And uh, the report indicates uh, 180, I believe it is, upwards to that. Um, And as you know, there was a survey uh, conducted. Essentially, it was pledges that members signed off on. Uh, stating that they had no interest in going to the RCMP, and at the present time, it's upwards to 95% said no. So um, that's uh, a different area that um, we take opposition to, as well as uh, I think uh, I do want to mention recruiting. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are one of the few major agencies in Canada, I believe, that has no problem recruiting police officers. And uh, when you're talking about experienced officers, we have over 1,000 applications, and we have, I believe, 900 for the brand-new recruits. 
And so uh, to continue to hire, which would be another 450 police officers for Surrey, would not be a problem for us. And that means that we believe we would be a net gain for policing in British Columbia. That is to say, you have an agency that has no problem hiring up to 734, and we know that there's challenges in recruiting across the country, including the RCMP, and you would have 400-plus RCMP members that could be placed elsewhere in the province, and we know there is a need. There's many vacancies, and let's not forget about the um, money that the province gave the RCMP for, I believe, 277 more additional police officers for specialty units and uh, smaller detachments. So when you look at the bigger picture, um, yes, we have uh, a couple of issues with the original report. Yeah. Now, uh, you, you talked about the $235 million over five years, which you disagree with. There was also... I just want to clarify this, that if, if let's just say they were to stick with the RCMP, uh, the loss would be about $200 million that's already sunk uh, for, for such things as IT and equipment, and then there would be about $80 million in severance payouts. Is that about roughly the right numbers? Yes, that's, uh, that's correct. And if you, if you look at it in detail, we've got 375 employees, uh, that would be terminated. Uh, two unions would be dissolved. The board would be dissolved. And uh, we have estimated upwards to $107 million in sunk costs. And part of that is $17 million in IT costs, which I'm advised is not compatible with the federal system. Then you have severance costs. And uh, it's built into the collective agreement and then there is some legislative aspects to this, which would uh, add to that costing as well. And depending on how you look at it, we estimate upwards to $81 million in severance costs. So you're starting to talk about some significant numbers here. Now, Chief, this isn't... Uh a policing question. It's a political one. Whether it was the previous administration or this administration in your community, do you feel let down by the political process that started this move towards the Surrey Police Service and now wants to reverse it? There's a couple of aspects to that. You know, first of all, I am a, uh, a strong, strong believer in due process and uh, due process being followed here. And I respect that. And um, sure, uh, when, when people change direction, it's a disappointment because there's some people that have been working on this project for four years. I've been working on it for two years and, and sunk a lot of, of emotion and, and toil into this uh, and, and sweat equity and so forth. And of course, uh, you know, it sets you back a bit. But we have to follow the process, and uh, any municipality can decide on uh, the type of policing they desire, but ultimately the province makes the decision. Uh, I do believe that, uh, you know, the politics of this is, could be, become precarious because does that mean every four years a municipality can change the type of policing they desire? 
where does that leave the public? I don't think that's in the best interest of the public. But ultimately, policing, uh, we try and be apolitical. Uh, our job is public safety. But certainly, uh, when uh, changes occur of this nature, this significance, it sets us back, and uh, it is uh, disappointing, but we have to follow the process. And what I look forward to is an early decision. We've asked about a date. We haven't been told a date. Uh, we've been told that it'd be early in the new year. And uh, I do believe that the provincial government is well, well aware of the time urgency of this. And uh, whether it's the RCMP, the city, or um, uh, the SPS, uh, we're all anxiously waiting. But this has got to be uh, somewhat disappointing for you. I mean, and I, the reason I say this, I don't want to belabor this, but you were told to do a job, and you've, done, you've been doing it. And for, it to now do, for you to now deal with a 180-degree turn based on a narrow victory has got to be frustrating, number one, and, and I would guess ultimately a lesson that there probably wasn't uh, the right process for this to at least move along smoothly because ultimately the work that you've put in, whether people agree with the police service, uh, Surrey Police Service or Richmond RCMP, or um, Surrey RCMP, the process has been fundamentally flawed because you've been doing all this work and now we're asked to do, you're asked to do a, a complete 180-degree turn with significant, significant fiscal cost to the taxpayer if it is ultimately reversed? Yes, um, a couple of points I could make there. Uh, number one is uh, four years ago, the municipal government of the day uh, made a decision to go in this direction. Research was done. There was two reports that were submitted. As you know, provincial government uh, said it's a go. Four years in the making. Uh, it is frustrating, uh, but we've never gone down this road or have been in such a position to build a brand new agency from the start. I've got, uh, I, I get inquiries from other municipalities and they ask me about uh, what would be your one piece of advice. And, and I say to them, wherever possible, uh, speed, move this along. And uh, there's lessons learned uh, in this project from a logistical perspective, from a legal perspective, uh, and keeping in mind it's complicated, of course, three levels of government, many stakeholders. But we have to, and I would advocate, uh, moving this along, anybody else doing this. Uh, it, uh, it, it's taking longer than I anticipated, and I understand all the reasoning behind it, and uh, we certainly have a template for anybody else that would be considering doing it of where you could speed things up. And um, there's uh, some very, very good lessons learned here. But uh, that is my one piece of advice, uh, speed it up. Well, Chief Levinsky, I think uh, you and I will be talking about uh, this topic early in the new year and where we, where we are expecting a, um, a decision from the provincial government. Uh, if we don't speak before then, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. Happy holidays. Let's talk about immigration and housing. The Canadian population just blew past 39 million people this year, and the country is only going to get bigger. Ottawa announced in November it wants to bring in half a million more immigrants each year 
post-2025. I remember in the 1990s uh, when we used to debate having 225,000 people coming to this country, but we're now talking about bringing in half a million more immigrants each year post-2025. Now, the population grows apace, yet our infrastructure is struggling to keep up, and it's a story playing out across Canada. Now, experts say a crisis is looming for many cities as the population is expected to hit 48 million people in 2043. Now, the birth rate reached a historic low in Canada of 1.4 births per per woman in 2021. New immigrants tend to be younger and have young families or start them soon after arriving. Now, this means schools. It means the development of more housing in the areas where people want to live, in cities where immigrants tend to settle, Toronto, Montreal, and of course in Vancouver, but also increasingly in smaller uh, centres as well, like Kamloops and Kelowna. This means the infrastructure will need to grow uh, too. When you think of transit and walkable communities, a power grid that can sustain increased use because of climate change, and the maintenance of infrastructure that currently exists. It's a significant challenge. Joining me now to discuss our growing infrastructure challenges and our need for even more immigrants is Dr. Mike Moffat. He is the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute and an Assistant Professor in the Business Economics and Public Policy Group at Ivy Business School at Western University. Dr. Moffat, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, the issue of immigration and and infrastructure isn't something uh, most Canadians and British Columbians think about, especially this time of the year. But when you look at our numbers, it is quite staggering as to how many people are moving here and will continue to move here. As a public policy expert like yourself, what goes through your mind when you see the numbers that we are expecting to come here in the years ahead? And then when you look at our infrastructure, what, what, what do you think of? Well, I, I think we have a real challenge, and I think, like many issues in Canada, we have a, a real coordination problem between the federal government, the provincial government, and, and the municipalities, where uh, the federal government sets rules on immigration and international students and a variety of sort of policies, uh, but that doesn't filter through to decisions around uh, infrastructure, whether that be roads or schools or uh, or housing. So we have a real challenge uh, ahead of us that in many parts of, of Canada, whether it be uh, lower mainland BC or southwestern Ontario, we're experiencing uh, fairly chronic housing shortages. So unless we're able to sort of figure out how to increase our housing supply uh, to accommodate this growing population, uh, we should expect those shortages to continue. Uh, what kind of policy prescriptions at a provincial or federal level do you think we need to be focusing on to deal with this? Because it is a chronic challenge, but with the amount of immigration the federal government has announced that will be coming, I think it's 500,000 people per year by 2025. I, I recall in, uh, back in the 1990s, we used to debate numbers like 225,000 immigrants coming to this country. Now we're at potentially half a million by 2025 per year. What kind of things do we need to be focusing on that will at least begin to help us address some of these challenges before us? Well, I, I would say the, the first thing we need to recognize is, is that the, the true number is probably not 500,000. It's actually probably significantly greater uh, than that. So when we talk about immigration, that's a form of sort of permanent residency. So it's anybody who comes to Canada and becomes a permanent resident. In the last 12 months, Canada has also added another 375,000 non-permanent residents. Those are anything uh, from international students to uh, people on work visas to 
refugees from Ukraine. So the actual number is, is probably closer to eight or 900,000, not 500,000 when we look at overall international migrations. That's a, a big challenge. And I think the, the first thing that we need to do at a, uh, at a provincial level uh, is, is look at substantial housing reform. So here in Ontario, we have uh, the More Homes Built Faster Act, which goes part of the way there. Uh, looking at uh, things like zoning reform, uh, faster approvals processes, and, and things like that. We also need to address the, the labor shortages, uh, labor shortages in, in building housing. And here, if we design our immigration system well, that can actually help us with our housing shortage. You know, our immigration system historically has been uh, focused on bringing in a lot of white-collar labor, but where the shortages are in many local economies are in plumbers and electricians and, and bricklayers and roofers. So, you know, looking at the types of uh, skills that we're bringing into Canada is going to be crucially important if we're going to build the housing and infrastructure we need. How did we get here? This doesn't happen overnight. I mean, our immigration numbers, we've always talked about a labor shortage as the baby boomers retired. Add to that a housing issue. How did we get to this point today because it certainly didn't happen overnight. No, it, it didn't. Uh, it's, it's been decades uh, in the making. And I think, it, again, it's a, it's a sort of classic Canadian problem where, where one level of government uh, doesn't uh, interact with another level of government. So, uh, you know, in Ontario, for instance, in 2016, when uh, the provincial government was coming up with their growth plan for the greater Toronto area, of you know deciding how much we land we need for housing and those sorts of things it is actually built in the assumption that our uh, population growth is actually going to slow down and this was despite the fact that the federal government was actively increasing immigration targets so you know, we have this classic problem of, of you know one level of government doesn't inform the other level of government what what it's up to so that's part of that issue there and i think we need to better align our uh, our housing policies, uh, with our immigration policies, with our international student policies. You know, right now, um, you know, colleges and universities basically get to decide how many international students they bring in. There's no quota. There's no target, unlike immigration. But oftentimes, those colleges and universities don't coordinate with the different levels of government on on things like housing needs, so they can bring in many international students as they want and just kind of assume that they'll be able to find housing and unfortunately we know that's not the case and many live end up living in um, you know, just just awful conditions because because of that lack of housing. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are other ways to address some of these challenges in regards to labor besides immigration? I know it's a, it's a tough one, but you know when I listen to callers on this show, many time, times you're hearing people for the first time saying there's too much immigration. They're not necessarily against immigration, but they feel that this country is moving way too fast in regards to allowing the amount of immigrants that we have coming in and the ability to absorb them in the housing side, infrastructure, and assimilation as well. Do you think that Canada is heading in the right direction in regards to its immigration policy? It's not against being against immigrants, but are we allowing too many to come in too quickly? Well, I, I do think uh, we, we need to, again, have that level of, of coordination. Um, I think, again, one of the bigger problems is more on the non-permanent resident side, that that's more of a, a wild west and even has uh, less of a plan. But I, I do think as well we need to look at uh, ways to increase our productivity. Um, so, you know, I mentioned the, the need for 
uh, more labor to build homes, but can we figure out a way to do this more productively? My, my dad was uh, in the home building industry in the 1970s, and we basically built homes the same way uh, he did back then. So, you know, can we figure out clever ways to, to automate this, to increase our productivity, so we don't, you know, we don't have to have uh, as much uh, as much labor. So, uh, you know, dealing with things on the technology side rather than on the labor side. Are there any jurisdictions as we talk about immigration infrastructure? Are there any jurisdictions in the Western world, in the G7 or G20, that you think do this well or have a a much more uh, coordinated plan when it comes to infrastructure uh, and immigration that you see uh, around the globe? Yeah, we, we are seeing uh, countries deal with uh, this problem. So, so New Zealand, I, I think, is uh, a country that Canada can can look at because it had similar issues uh, to to both British Columbia and on, Ontario, where the population uh, through international sources was, was growing faster than the housing stock. So, they've made real steps to align uh, their housing policies and their and their immigration policy. So, I, I think they're they're certainly worth, worth looking at. Um, Again, I, I think the, the, the bigger challenge is the lack of lack of coordination. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to see the federal government, for instance, you know, work with the provinces and develop those immigration targets. You know, right now the federal government basically gives the provinces about 18 months' notice on what these immigration targets are going to be, and that's hard for them to to pivot to make the changes necessary on housing. So. I think we need to to have the federal governments uh, come up with essentially you know multi-year plans well ahead of time, coordinating with the provinces, and that that would allow the provinces to figure out how they're going to uh, have enough infrastructure, the the housing, the the the, the schools, the roads, that kind of thing to. to uh, accommodate a growing population. If we do not do what you're saying, uh, what does Canada look like to you in 10 years? Well, my, my fear is that we, we have uh, chronic housing shortages and just high prices. So basically more of the same that we've had over the last uh, little while. That uh, we, we have schools uh, that uh, we're, we're just basically, you know, have a lot of portables, you know, don't have that infrastructure built. I think we're going to have a lot of 20-somethings, in many cases 30-somethings, continue to, to live in their parents' basement because of lack of housing. And I, I think it's just going to cause a lack of uh, social cohesion. And I, and I think we're already starting to see that where young people are getting frustrated. Young people are getting frustrated at uh, their inability to afford housing, whether that be ownership or rental. And this feeling that, uh, you know, government is not looking out for their interests. So I think there's very important social and economic reasons why we need to get this right. Mm-hmm. Is there, a, sometimes I do get calls, and I say this as an immigrant to this country as well, where people uh, will call my show, and I've heard on other shows as well, that can we not force immigrants, but, but can we encourage immigrants to perhaps settle in smaller communities here in British Columbia? Uh, and they're all fast-growing, uh, great places places to live in Kelowna and in Kamloops and in the Kootenays and the Caribou on Vancouver Island. Is there, do you think, a a place for a discussion encouraging immigrants when they come to this country or through the public policy side, encourage them to move to smaller communities perhaps rather than a mass immigration to some of our major urban centers like southern Ontario and Toronto or the lower mainland that that captures so many immigrants? Do you think there is opportunity 
to do some of those types of things and encouraging them to move to smaller centers. Yeah, and we're already seeing some of that. Uh, so, so for instance, on the immigration side, that uh, there is a, a, an Atlantic uh, Canada stream uh, on immigration that's been growing quite quite rapidly. So. Uh, because you're right, the uh, you know the the bulk of uh, new arrivals to Canada tend to end up in, in two places. So it's either a lower mainland in BC or or the Greater Toronto area. There has been this shift, and I think that you know I, I think that's worth looking at. You know, naturally, when when people come over, they're going to want to go to you know the community that their their, their cousin or their aunt or or whoever lives in. So so naturally, those ties are important. Those, those ties help better integrate uh, people into the the community. So I, you know, I should caution that we're starting to see these housing shortages in other parts of of Canada. Um, so Atlanta, Canada has record low vacancies right now and, and has high housing prices. And that's both from people moving there from uh, Ontario as well as new arrivals. I don't know if that entirely solves the problem rather than just kind of shifts it around. So, uh, but, but I do think it is worth looking at. And again, it is something that the federal government ha- has done over the last uh, five to ten years of uh, coming up with these new immigration streams to, to, to get newcomers to Canada to, to go to provinces that they normally wouldn't have considered in the past. Here in British Columbia, we're watching Ontario very closely where the provincial government has given more powers or wants to give more powers to big city mayors. Uh, in the case, I guess, uh, with Toronto, uh, a mayor may only need a third of city council's uh, approval uh, to push in uh, to, to change bylaws. And that is, of course, to speed up development, not to get bogged down on, on minutia and debates, but how get housing built and get housing built quickly. Um, is that something the public uh, in Ontario is supportive of? Because we have the same issues here. I think uh, two elections ago, there's 100,000 homes here in the lower mainland alone in Metro Vancouver waiting for approval through its variety of uh, 21 municipalities that form Metro Vancouver. Is that generally supported by residents in places like Toronto that do want to see more housing? That let's, let's turn the mayor's office into a super mayor's office, similar to what they do in the U.S. The mayor's office has much more power, much stronger and can get things pushed through sometimes a lot faster than uh, than the usual debates we have at our city halls in Canada. Yeah, it, it's been contentious uh, here. So uh, the, the, the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa have uh, been given these powers. Our, our new mayor in, in Ottawa uh, has basically said he won't use them, that, that he feels he, he doesn't need them. You know, like any political promise, we'll have to see if it's upheld. But uh, Mayor, Mayor Sutcliffe has basically said he won't uh, he won't use it. Uh, Mayor Tory, actually, just in the last 24 hours in Toronto, has has basically said that uh, he'll use it for the next uh, four years, and then you know the, he believes that the province should review it, see, see how it went, and, and use that as a bit of a test case. So it has been um, contentious here, but we've also had the situation where there's been so many changes on the housing file. Uh, it's been you know, difficult for uh, either supporters or uh, opponents to gravitate onto any one thing. So you know, some of the changes around land use in the Greenbelt have been more 
contentious than the mayoral changes. So overall, it's I, I would say more Ontarians oppose it than support it, but it hasn't uh, it hasn't been as contentious as it otherwise I think would be uh, simply because there's the, the government is changing so many other things at the same time. <laughs> well, it is a very uh, interesting and important conversation, Dr. Moffat. Thank you so much for your time, and Merry Christmas to you. Uh, Merry Christmas. Take care. Outside is great for a pet's physical and mental health. Walking, running, looking, sniffing, listening, and meeting old or new friends are all activities that keep uh, pets happy and healthy. But what should we do when it's when it's cold outside? Like, well, today and certainly uh, tomorrow in the next 36 hours or so. When do the risks of spending time outside outweigh its benefits? Well, joining us now to look at the dangers associated with cold weather and how we can still safely enjoy the great outdoors with our dogs in the winter is Dr. Lauren Edelman. Dr. Edelman is an internal medicine specialist at Canada West Veterinary Specialist Animal Hospital in Vancouver. Dr. Edelman, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Uh, you know, when we talk about this cold weather and even coverage here on CKNW, obviously it's the, the focus is on uh, the weather and its impact on people. We don't always talk about the impact uh, cold weather can have have on animals. Uh, walk me through some of the challenges or things that I think owners should be aware of uh, during this cold snap when it comes to the care of their animals. Yeah, so it's kind of a common belief that pets are more resistant than people to cold because of their fur, but that's really not true. Um, Just like people, cold tolerance uh, can vary based on, yes, the pet's coat, but also, you know, their body fat stores, activity levels, their overall health. We know that, you know, arthritic and elderly pets may have more difficulty walking on the snow and ice and can be prone to slipping or falling. And, you know, pets with chronic disease like heart disease or diabetes can have a hard time regulating their body temperature and can be more susceptible to kind of frostbite and hypothermia just like people would be. Uh, are, are you getting calls even with this cold snap now in regards to some con- uh, regarding concerns people have uh, with their own pets? I think, you know, the biggest things that we tend to see during this time of year when it gets really cold and icy is it's really common even for, you know, puppies and otherwise healthy dogs to slip on the ice and fracture their bones. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, you know, there's a lot of people who have outdoor cats. And during this time of year, it's really best to keep cats inside because they are quite prone to hypothermia and frostbite. And so that would be another common presentation for these types of pets coming through our emergency is if they're kept outside for prolonged periods below freezing, you know, those types of injuries are also possible. You know, we often uh, hear people say, look, on a hot day, uh, a pet should not be, uh, you shouldn't leave a pet, especially a dog, uh, in in a car uh, in in temperatures like this, I would, does this apply during winter as well for for pets? Definitely. I mean, I think in general, if it's cold outside, it's going to be cold in your car. But what people don't realize is that pets uh, cars actually act like refrigerators. So cars can actually get much colder than the outside temperature. And so even leaving your dog unattended, you know, while you go into the grocery store, it can get pretty cold pretty fast. So just like in the summer, leaving your dogs in cold cars is is a pretty big no-no. How common is frostbite uh, uh, when it comes to uh, animals? Like, do you see it occasionally during um, uh, cold spells like this here in Vancouver? Yeah, we definitely see both frostbite and hypothermia. I mean, frostbite specifically like cats on their ear tips, um, 
dogs, you know, their paws, especially there are some dogs that will let you put on, you know, paws, uh, little booties when they go outside. I know my dogs are not those dogs, Mm -hmm. but uh, their little paws can definitely be prone to frostbite. Just like, just like in people, your fingertips, your toes, any areas in the periphery that don't have as good of a blood supply. Mm -hmm. And the other big thing, you know, when we think about snow is as you're walking around, you see a lot of people are using things like ice melts. Mm-hmm. And that ice melt or that salt, not only not necessarily causing frostbite, but if it gets on your dog's paws, can actually almost cause like chemical burns. And so it's really important to make sure if your dogs aren't wearing uh, booties outside, that when they come inside, you wash their paws and wash their bellies to make sure you get any of those uh, de-icers or salts off their paws. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, this would be, you know, the, some of the advice you're giving <laughs> You know, in many cases, um, a lot of our listeners in the interior would go, well, this is what we deal with on a regular basis. But we're not used to this in Vancouver, are we, in in many cases? You know, two cold spells that we've had so far this year with lots of snow, and that's been about it. I mean, it it is really about education, isn't it? I mean, Ontario and Quebec, with their winters, you'd understand. Like I said, in the interior, they would get it. But we just don't see a lot of this, do we, here in Vancouver? Exactly. And I think, you you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's uh, it's just something we're not necessarily educated on. I grew up in Alberta, and, you know, our our dogs just were used to walking, especially small dogs, with little booties and their winter coats on outside. It's just something you, you know, you get used to and you know about. But here, you know, it's really, you know, it's tempting to just let your dog frolic for hours and hours in the snow. But just like in the heat, they're often not going to regulate their own temperature. And so if you start noticing, you know, signs that your dog's paws or ears are cold or if they start shivering or acting confused, those could be signs of hypothermia. And so you definitely want to be aware of these signs and, you know, bring your dog or cat inside uh, if you're noticing anything concerning. So if if I wanted to take my dog out for a walk today, and let's say it's a longer walk, an hour-long walk that you used to usually do, should you not do that or should you, should you shorten that just because of the time outside in the cold? Well, it really depends on your dog, right? If you have a northern breed like a husky with a thick coat who's used to being in the snow, that's probably still fine. But if you have an elderly Shih Tzu who maybe has some chronic health issues, you know, probably doing either a shorter walk or just letting them set their own pace, maybe not even taking them out at all is is a good idea. So it really, you know, you have to base that type of thing on your individual dog and what they want to do. Um, but be careful. It's always better to err on the side of caution. And like I said, you know, some of these things are also just ice and slipperiness. So, you know, the last thing you want uh, three days, four days before, you know, the holidays before Christmas are to come to the ER and have a, you know, a fractured leg on your dog that needs surgery. So sometimes better safe than sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious. I know we've only had a, a, a couple of days of this now. Have you noticed an uptake on just uh, uh, pets coming in with uh, uh, hypothermia or just uh, sort of winter related uh, injuries so far? Or has it been pretty good in your clinic? Um, we've definitely seen some winter-related injuries, for sure, I think, when the temperature is cold. And, you know, for instance, yesterday we were open, but really the only people coming in during a day like yesterday are going to be the people with true emergencies. So, yeah, our surgery team definitely, I mean, are busy with fractures and, you know, all sorts of other things, you know, non-winter-related. But absolutely, you know, I think any time the holidays in general, whether it's cold weather or just all the, you know, potential holiday hazards that come, uh, our emergency rooms are always busy. Dr. Edelman, thank you so much for your time. And if we don't speak, Merry Christmas to you. Yes, you too. 
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.